just a few minutes, we're going to be looking at the book of Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, we're going to look at verses 16 and 17. Um, if you'd like to go ahead and find your way there, um, it's, it should be in the Bible app. It's also, um, of course, it's in your Bible, unless you took it out, but uh, it's in your Bible and it's also on our website. Uh, you know, as I was studying to, to preach over these verses, one thing I do, it kind of, uh, after I break down the text and, and I, I, I decide the direction where I'm going and, and that sort of thing, I start to uh, consult some commentaries and just to make sure I'm not saying something heretical or something. And uh, I, was, I was reading through a lot of different commentaries just to see what they say. And I kept noticing over and over again the same thing relating to these verses. Most of the commentaries noted in one way or another that, that uh, these verses really are the theme of the book of Romans. And as I stated in the introduction to the book of Romans a few weeks back, Martin Luther was greatly, uh, greatly struggled with verse 17 of Romans chapter one. And he finally uh, came to understand, uh, understand Romans one uh, seventeen, and it transformed his life. And this was the beginning of what is known as the Protestant Rest Re Reformation. And so we can honestly say that these verses that we're about to read have had an impact on history. And honestly, I believe that if we take these verses and we internalize the truths that we find in them, they will have a profound impact and effect on our lives. Now, before we read the verses, I want us to see kind of the flow of thought that Paul uses in these verses. Um, he, he has a flow that he, he does here. And notice at the very, very beginning of verse 16 is what we'll see is that he starts uh, with the word for, which connects it to the previous verses. What did Paul say in that verse? That he was eager to preach the gospel in Rome. Well, why is he eager? Because he's not ashamed of the gospel. And why is he not ashamed of the gospel? For it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. How is this possible that the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes? Because in it, we find the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Well, where does all this come from? Where does all the faith come from? Did Paul just think it up? Did he just make the gospel up? Did he, uh, when he's writing the book of Romans, was he like, oh, well, this sounds nice. I'll just make the gospel up. No, he tells us as he quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, when, he's, when he says, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Do you ever wonder why Paul starts off verse 16 by saying he's not ashamed of the gospel? Doesn't that seem odd to say? I mean, this is Apostle Paul. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Many people say that's a figure of speech where you understate the affirmative by the negative of the contrary. I know that's real confusing, right? You wrapped your mind around what I just said. But uh, it's, it's like when, when you try to say uh, something uh, uh, about, you know, maybe you, you eat a piece of food and you're like, this isn't bad. You don't, what do you mean by that? Well, you mean it's pretty good. That's what you mean. So when Paul makes the statement that he's not ashamed of the gospel, he's implying that he's proud of the gospel. 
that he glorifies in the gospel. So the question is, why does Paul say it this way? Well, well, why doesn't he just come out and say, well, I'm proud of the gospel? Well, who's he writing to? He's writing to the Romans. And there are several reasons they might be uncomfortable with Paul, a Jew, coming to a place like Rome to preach about a Jewish carpenter who was, who was executed by the Roman government by being crucified. Rome was the capital of the civilized world. That account does not sound so great. Furthermore, you better have a message that appeals to the educated or no one's gonna to listen to you in Rome. <clears throat> Plus, they're looking for answers for the pressing needs of the Roman Empire. What are the solutions to slavery? What are the solutions to the greed and the lust and the violence and everything that's going on in Rome? <clears throat> well, look at Paul's message. It doesn't address these issues. His message is laser focused on the main need of every single human being on the face of the earth. Whether they were the most religious person, the most educated person, uh, doesn't matter who they are, whether they're some worldly, immoral Greek person, the need for everyone was to be reconciled to God. Paul's theme in Romans is God and the good news. And the and it, good news comes from God. And his theme is how sinners can be delivered from God's righteous judgment and how they can be reconciled to God. That is the message that Paul provides to us. And so let's read this message from the book of Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. I'd ask that if you're willing and able, would you please stand out of respect for God's word as we read Romans 1, 16 and 17. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version this morning. <clears throat> we read, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Let's pray. Father, take this word this morning and use it to penetrate hearts and lives. Not because I'm a, a good preacher, but because your word does exactly that. It penetrates hearts and lives. Pray it does that this morning. Pray you speak for your saints are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. If I was going to give you this sermon in a sentence, it would be this. Since the saving power of God is the gospel, we must believe it and we must proclaim it. First, notice that the saving power of God is the gospel. The saving power of God is the gospel. Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Do you believe that this morning? You see, I have found that we must believe that before we will ever proclaim it. If you don't believe it, then you're never going to proclaim it. The gospel is all about salvation. And, and if you don't understand that, if you don't believe it, then why would you tell anybody about it? And so what happens often is we, we say we believe it, but we don't believe it to the sense that we actually tell anybody else about it. And you see, that's a problem. 
It's a problem if we say that we believe this truth that, that can save people from an eternal hell, but then we never tell anybody about it. What I've done here is I've broken this whole, this whole idea of the saving power of God as the gospel. Um, I've broken it down into the gospel is about salvation in five statements. Statement number one, everyone needs it. Everyone needs it. Everyone needs salvation. Paul, over the next few chapters, will make this clear as he reveals that all have sinned, and therefore everyone has fallen short and are therefore under the condemnation of God. It really does not matter who these people are as everyone is alienated from God. Everyone. Why? Why is everyone alienated from God? Well, because God is absolutely righteous, absolutely holy. So therefore, everyone is under the wrath of God, which is what Paul explains in verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Salvation is a rescue from the wrath of God and the judgment of God that we deserve because we're a bunch of sinners. It means that we are no longer under the penalty of sin, which happens the moment you place your trust in Christ. And we are in the process of being delivered from the power of sin as we grow in Christ-likeness. And we are being delivered from the presence of sin when we one day will stand blameless in the, pre in the presence of God and His glory. According to Jude 24. There are so many positives when you think about salvation. Just think how we're reconciled to God. And so, how we can have this right relationship with God. And how we receive the incomprehensible riches that are found in Christ Jesus. So many positives to salvation, right? But just because we have all these positives, it's not an indication that we need to somehow sell the gospel by pretending there's nothing negative. So what happens sometimes, right, is, is we are actually ashamed of the gospel. If we are all basically good people, then why do we need salvation? Salvation for what? We're all basically good. We don't need salvation. There's no need to, for Christ to die for our sins. If everyone's basically good, then we all, all we need is for God to come along and just give us a little encouragement. You know, God can come and give us a pep talk. Stop and think about it. Who needs a crucified Savior if all they need is a little self-esteem boost and some tips on how they can live a better, happy life? The whole reason that we need a Savior who is crucified for our sins is because we are all, by our very nature, every single one of us, by our nature, ungodly rebels who are under the righteous wrath of God. And that natural man finds this offensive. You say that to the natural man and they don't want to hear, well, how dare you tell me? They don't want to hear that. But if we sugarcoat it, we miss the very heart of the gospel. The gospel is not good news to the person that does not need good news. 
It's only good news to the person that needs to be saved from an eternal hell. That's when it becomes good news. If I sit you down and say, hey, I got a cure for some rare disease. I just, I need you to know, I have a cure for a rare disease. And 0.1% of the population has this disease. That doesn't excite you, does it? Are you like, wow, awesome, pastor. That's incredible. But if I sit you down and I tell you you have a rare disease that 0.1% of the population has, and then I tell you I have the only cure, suddenly you need it, right? That's what we do with gospel. It's not good news to the person who doesn't need it. It's for everyone. Secondly, it's by the power of God. Everyone needs it, and it's by the power of God. We did not read the gospel tells you all about the power of God, but rather the gospel is the power of God for salvation. This makes it clear that salvation is not something that anyone can attain by their own efforts or their own good works. It is by the power of God. If we could attain uh, salvation by our strength, Christ would not have had to die on the cross. Salvation is not a project that requires you to have joint participation with God either, where God does his part and we do our part and then everything works out. Now I know what you're probably thinking. Well, don't I have to believe? And the answer is yes, you have to believe. But salvation is both received and sustained by faith. However, saving faith, which includes repentance, is not something that you can produce on your own. You can try all you want. You can do. You could you can think about it all you want. You can put all your effort into it, but you cannot produce faith on your own. Because we're told it's a gift from God. Why? So we can't boast about it. Salvation is not dependent on human decisions, but on the power of God. So what is required? Well, if we're dead sinners, we can do nothing, right? Because we are dead. I don't know when the last time you walked up to a dead man and they did something, but it doesn't happen that way. And so God has to impart this new life into us because we're dead sinners. And that, is, and that is something that's impossible for man to bring about. I can't impart new life into anybody. You remember what happened when Jesus showed up? At Lazarus' tomb, right? Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is not just dead. Lazarus is dead dead. And Mary says, Lord, he stinks. Jesus cried out, Lazarus, come forth. And what happened? Lazarus said, nah, I, I can't like this dead thing. It's, it's nice being dead. I like it in this tomb, being wrapped in these grave clothes. No, he came forth. And I wonder what everyone uh, around was thinking when Jesus showed up, right, and said and said that, said, Lazarus, come forth. I wonder if they were like, uh, doesn't Jesus know Lazarus is dead? He's been in there for four days. The power of God through the word of Jesus Christ imparted life to dead Lazarus. And death had no choice but to obey. It just had to obey. 
That is what the gospel is like. Or how about that rich young ruler who came to Jesus as a spiritually dead man and walked away with eternal life? Jesus said to his disciples that it's hard for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples are astonished by what Jesus says. And, and, and they're like, I can't believe Jesus would say this. And they go to Jesus and they say, then how can anybody be saved? What does Jesus say? They just got to try hard enough. They got to do more hard work. Nope. He says, with people, it is impossible. Impossible. Not might, not partway possible. With people, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. In other words, he's telling them that salvation is from the Lord. Salvation requires the power of God. The gospel is not just some good advice that you can take and try it out. It is the very power of God that imparts new life and salvation to those who are dead in their sins and under God's just wrath and condemnation. I like what Thomas Schreiner says in his commentary. The preaching of the word does not merely make salvation possible, but affects salvation in those who are called. Everyone needs salvation. It is by the power of God. And thirdly, God's righteousness must be applied to sinners. Look down at verse 17. Paul gives this explanation as to why the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. He says, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. This tells us the gospel is not the result of anything except the revelation of God through his son. In Galatians chapter 1 verse 15, Paul gives an explanation for his own conversion when he says this, when God who had set me apart from my mother's womb, when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal the Son in me. The gospel comes to us by the revelation from God that is centered around his Son. Now, what I find interesting is this. Paul's not starting with God's love here when he's given this explanation of the gospel. But instead, he starts with God's righteousness. Now, we know the gospel, right? It's a, it's a display of God's love for sinners. We know that. But the love of God is not a stumbling block for sinners. They like the idea of God's love. Everybody likes the idea of God's love. Just look at the, just look at the world today. If God is all love and no righteousness, then he's like our buddy in the sky. But it's the righteousness of God that presents us with a problem because we all have sinned. And if God is righteous and we're not righteous, then what do we need? We need a Savior. But look what Paul says. The righteousness of God is revealed. Commentators tell us that there are three main options to that. First, Paul could mean that God's attribute of righteousness, the fact that he is always does and always always is and always does what is right is revealed to us in the gospel but Martin Lloyd-Jones rejects that view because he says then the gospel would not be good news but terrifying news I don't think that's what Paul's primary meaning is here but I would say this if a person has no concept of the absolute righteousness of God then they really do not understand the frightening position that they're in 
Because they're under the wrath of God as an unrighteous sinner. And so the gospel does reveal the righteousness of God to us, which then makes us aware of our desperate need for salvation. And that should drive us to the cross of Christ. Secondly, some say that by the righteousness of God, Paul may be referring to God's saving power and being faithful to his covenant promises. The Old Testament will often refer to God's righteousness as his salvation of his people. There's a third option that some say, by the righteousness of God, Paul is referencing a righteousness that comes from God, which he gives to those who believe. F.F. F. Bruce, in his, in his commentary, makes the argument that in the Old Testament, which forms the main background of Paul's thought and language, righteousness is not much, uh, is not much more, much a more, much of a moral quality as rather a legal status. He says this: God Himself is righteous, and those men and women are righteous who are in right relationship to God and His law. He adds this: When therefore the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel, it is revealed in a twofold manner. The gospel tells us first how men and women, sinners as they are, can come to be in right standing with God. And second, how God's personal righteous, righteousness is vindicated in the very act of declaring sinful men and women righteous. Now I believe the third meaning is what Paul is thinking about in verse 17. That the gospel reveals to us how sinners can be made righteous or justified by faith before God. We know this if we compare Romans chapter 1 verse 17 with Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26 where we read this, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be revealed by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he has passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. God reveals his righteousness in the gospel where he grants right standing to sinners because his son met the righteous requirement of his perfect law and he died to pay the penalty that sinners deserve. You see, sinners are not justified by their own righteousness or their own ability to keep the law. We are justified because God takes the righteousness of Christ and he puts the righteousness of Christ on us. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Salvation actually upholds the righteousness of God because it applies it to the sinner who believes. And that leads us to the fourth point about salvation. It is by faith. It is by faith. It's important to understand that salvation is by faith from start to finish. Look what Paul says. Salvation is to everyone who believes. And then he says, from faith to faith. And then he says, and the righteous shall live by faith. If salvation was through faith plus something else, how, how, uh, how would that be good news to anyone? Because you would never know if you've done enough something else 
to be saved. If it's my faith and my good works, how many, how many good works do I have to do to be saved? However, if God declares a guilty sinner to be righteous or justified the very moment they believed, then that's good news. But what is saving faith? If someone says they believe in Jesus as Savior, does that save them? No. Right? Jesus said even the demons believe. They're not saved. There are three elements to saving faith. Element number one is with our mind. We understand the gospel. We understand who Jesus is. What his death on the cross means. And that he was raised from the dead. Secondly, our heart responds to the truth of the gospel. Our heart becomes sorrowful about our sin and it rejoices in the free offer of salvation. Thirdly, there is a commitment to Christ where we trust in Christ and his death on the cross as our only hope for salvation and we follow him as Lord. This is not a work that we do. Instead, it is us receiving everything that God offers us in Christ. It's like when you receive a gift, right? Everyone likes to be surprised when you get a gift for no reason. All you have to do is receive it. If I, if I come up to you and, and I hand you $100, which I probably wouldn't do. I mean, I don't have that kind of money. But if I did that, you just got to take it. You just receive it. But Paul uses this phrase, from faith to faith. What does that mean? I think Paul is making an emphasis on the centrality of faith in receiving the gospel. We receive this gospel by faith. And then guess what? We continue by faith. We know this because in verse 16, that word believes is a present part of participle, making the point that saving faith is not just this single event that happens one time, but it is actually a lifelong process. This is the way that works. The moment we believe in the gospel, in Jesus Christ, we trust in him, we're justified. But as we go on believing the gospel throughout our life, God reveals to us over and over and over again that we have right standing with him on the basis of Christ's death on the cross. You see, our faith applies that righteousness of Christ to us, and we increasingly get to rejoice because Christ alone is our only hope of eternal life. We can never come to the place where we trust in our goodness, ever. That's sufficient for even contributing in any way to our salvation. We can never come to that place where, well, I was really a good person. No, you weren't. There's nothing that we do that contributes to our salvation. This is why Jonathan Edwards said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it possible or necessary. We have this third issue of faith, right? Because Paul quotes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. I know you guys probably spend a lot of time in Habakkuk in your devotional time. But Habakkuk 2, 4. The righteous shall live by faith. This serves to show everybody that the gospel is not something that Paul just made up. The Old Testament prophet Habakkuk backs up that the righteous can only be righteousness can only be attained by faith. And I believe that Paul is saying that the person who is righteous or justified by faith will live, which is to be saved. The last point about salvation is this: it is personal. It is personal. 
Paul says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. Now, Paul could have said to the Jews, plural, and also to the Greeks, plural. That's not what he said. Instead, he uses a singular. Salvation is an individual, personal matter. What I'm saying is that being a member of a group doesn't save you. Being a specific race doesn't save you. Even though the Jews were God's chosen people, didn't save them. Being an American doesn't save you. Being in a Christian family does not save you. You must personally believe in Jesus Christ to be saved. When Paul says the Jew first, that's just meaning that it came to the Jews first. God chose Abraham and his descendants through Isaac and Jacob as a race to which he revealed his salvation. It was through the Jews that the Savior came. This is why Jesus said salvation is from the Jews in John 4, 22. Paul's emphasis here is on the universal offer of the gospel. He says it's for everyone who believes. Everyone. This means that the gospel is for everyone. And that is good news. The religious and the pagan, the Jew and the Gentile, no one is to be excluded from the gospel. This is good news for you. It doesn't matter what your background is. It doesn't matter if you are a self-righteous religious person with high moral standards. The gospel is for you. You can trust and you can't trust in any of these things to get you to heaven. The gospel is what gets you to heaven. You come to Christ as a sinner and you receive his righteousness by faith. Or maybe you're an atheist who is moral and, and greedy. Or maybe you're a cheating business person. Or maybe you're any number of things. Maybe you're the lowest of low that you can possibly think of. Guess what? I got great news. The gospel is for you. You have to cry out to God and you turn from your sin and you ask God, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, and you will go home justified because the gospel is for you. Oh, that we would understand that the gospel truly is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And for this reason, we must believe it. We must believe it. Point number two. We must believe it. Do you believe it? Do you believe the gospel? Have you truly abandoned all of your self-righteousness, all of your good works as a basis for your standing before God? And have you instead trusted in Christ alone and in his death and in his resurrection? Do you believe the good news when you fail? When Satan begins to accuse you and tell you you're a failure, you're a loser. I felt like that lately. I know what it's like to lay in bed and listen to the accusations of the evil one ring loud and clear in your head. But we are in right standing with God. Are you daily fighting your sin so that your attitudes and your behaviors are progressively more and more righteous? Is God's power to save you from the power of sin evident in your life, in your relationships, 
Is it evident when no one else is around you? You see, we have to truly believe it. We have to truly believe the gospel. And we don't believe it just one time, but we believe it every single day of our life as followers of Jesus. We believe the gospel. Are you doing that, dear friend? We really believe it. Then I have one last statement. We must proclaim it. We must proclaim it. This could be a whole nother sermon. I will not preach a whole nother sermon. But here's a question. Are you ashamed of the gospel? Will you proclaim it? If not, then could it be that you're ashamed of it? What about when you have the opportunity to warn people about the wrath of God to come? Do you dodge them? Do you ignore them? You don't want to talk about it because it's not popular. What do you do when you go to the grocery store? When you go to Walmart? You go to Menards? You go to your restaurant? You go hang out with your friends? What do you do? Do you try to have gospel conversations? Just hide it. Does it get awkward? What do you do? Do you really believe it? Do you not tell people about the shed blood of Jesus as the only remedy for our sin because you think no one wants to hear it? Do you try to put your own positive spin on the gospel to make it more attractive so that it sounds like a positive plan for happy living for everybody's life? You see, that's being ashamed of the gospel. Church, just proclaim it. Just proclaim it. Proclaim it in your everyday life. Proclaim it in what you are doing. Proclaim the gospel. Proclaim it when you go to the restaurant. Proclaim it when you go to the store. Proclaim it when you're hanging out with your buddy. Proclaim it at the gas station. I don't care where you are. Just proclaim the gospel. Because it's the only hope for a lost and dying world is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the only hope. And if we are not proclaiming it as the people who supposedly believe it, then no one else is. In conclusion, let me say this. The gospel is the good news that God has revealed to us to show us how to be rescued from the wrath that is to come. It is the power of God to save everyone who believes because the gospel reveals to us that God is perfectly righteous. And his righteousness will be placed on us if we trust in Christ as our Savior. If you placed your faith in Christ for salvation this morning, you can be saved. You can trust in Christ today and place your hope in him today. You can pray a prayer. You can say, dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are God's son and you died to forgive me of my sins. I know I'm a sinner. 
I ask you to forgive me. I turn from my sins and I receive you as my Lord and Savior. Thank you for saving me. I want to live for you the rest of my life. It's not a magic prayer. Jesus saves you if you trust in him. You call out to him. All his prayer is is an expression of, of your trust in him. If you said a prayer or something like it, I would love to follow up with you. You can come forward at the end of the service. If you're online, you can text the word faith to 309-328-3488. Again, that's the word faith to 309-328-3488. Can you even do that in your pew? I pray this morning that you understand the gospel. I pray this morning that you believe the gospel. I pray this morning that you preach the gospel every day to yourself. Every single day. And finally, I pray that you're proclaiming it as the only solution to the problem of sin in the world. Because nothing else has the power of salvation. Let's close with prayer. Father, I thank you. the gospel. Well, Lord, without it, we would have no hope. No hope of salvation. The Lord, for some reason, you've seen fit Take your only son, send him to this earth, and let him die for our sin. Your perfect son. So that when we call out to you for salvation, you take his righteousness, God, and place it on us. Thank you. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for salvation. And Lord, I pray this morning, there may be those that have never trusted in Christ as their Savior that will hear this message. And maybe for the first time, they've sensed you grab a hold of them. Lord, I pray that they'd cry out to you for salvation. And you do a work in their heart and their life. Lord, I pray for us. Us people that call ourselves Christians, believers, followers of Jesus Christ. Lord God, teach us to believe it. Let us believe it, not just once, God, but every single day. Lord, that we preach to ourselves. And when the evil one comes whispering, Lord, we preach the gospel to ourselves. That we are bought by the blood of your son. And the evil one has no dominion over us. Thank you that we are saved from the penalty of sin. And that we are being saved from the power of sin. Sin has no power 
over us. Oh God, we would proclaim the gospel to ourselves every day. And then Lord, we proclaim it to others, this gospel that we believe. Lord, I pray that if you've convicted us in any way this morning that we respond to your word. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we sing, we will come. Amen.